Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to three. I'm Gil Gross with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy. Novak Djokovic is through to his 10th Australian Open semifinal. He has never lost once he's gotten past that quarterfinal stage, and he did so last night against Andre Rublev. We are going to preview his semifinal against Tommy Paul, chat a little bit about that, uh, talk about the quarter against Rublev, and then go back uh, to earlier in the tournament where Novak was mostly battling his own body and just uh, talk about our takeaways from that period of time. But Amy, that that Andre Rublev match, which Novak won 6-1, 6-2, 6-4, it's amazing that that was a match against a guy who's finished in the top eight three years in a row because it legitimately had the feel and the scoreline of a second-round match. I can't believe how good Novak looks right now. Let's put aside the hamstring injury for a second. We can talk about that in a minute. He's serving with speed and power and hitting his spots. He is hitting his ground strokes with accuracy, depth, and power. He is finishing points. He is occasionally serving and volleying. He is drop shotting to perfection. He said after the Rublev match that it was closer than the score indicated. Um, I think maybe he was just being nice there because that was a extremely thorough drubbing against a really high qual- quality opponent. Well, he's wise to say that and he probably you know, watched some of the, the rallies because it's not going to be you're going to work with Rublev. I mean it's kind of like there's points and there's rallies and he's and uh but in a way you see Rublev kind of he didn't bring too many ideas and then he ran out of ideas and Novak just this whole tournament has been showing kind of a a master class. I mean the opponents we can talk about the the people he's played but it's just uh we were talking about this last year at the at the year end championships. Uh baby I'm back. And he wants to let you know that. And get ready, Carlos, because daddy's back in town. Yeah, the biggest thing that has uh, stood out to me, although Djokovic has been really 100% um, in every area other than his defense, which has to do with his his body, uh, is uh, the forehand, which I just feel like he's flattened out and it's starting to get through the court and he's averaging low 80 miles per hour, which is really as as hard as you can hit it. Uh, and that has become a, a huge weapon to the point where Demonor looked completely overpowered. And then, you know, forehand to forehand, Djokovic was kind of going at Rublev uh, t- to that side of the court. I thought to open up the backhand side so that he can get Rublev to hit backhands on the run. Uh, but to me, the, the Djokovic forehand is completely dialed in, and it's been a major weapon on the court, which he's needed because he, he wants to control play right now uh, quite desperately, as he should. 
what's amazing is that his last two opponents, Demonor and Rublev, are two of the quickest guys on tour. And I mean, he was hitting winners against Rublev that Rublev wasn't even bothering to run for. And, he, and if he had, he wouldn't have been able to get there. Um, so it, it's his, um, his depth and his angles and the pace is such that even the quickest in the world are struggling. And the other thing I just want to mention, um, if there's a hole in somebody's game, and there is a hole in Rublev's game, and it's his second serve, um, Novak is going to pounce on that and, and expose it for everything that it is. Absolutely right. 32 winners versus Rublev, 26 versus Dimonor. And also, I think, though, these guys, I think those guys, they're very linear. They're kind of, if you look from a distance, you think, oh, yeah, they're like Novak guys who hit flat 200 backhands. But then, another, then you look a little closer, not at all. Novak, he's got the court positioning. He's taking away time. He's got a certain kind of imagination and whip to his ball. They're very, uh, both linear. I mean, Dimonor, they're great players. I mean, Dimonor is a terrific fighter but he doesn't have a lot of um, velocity on his ball. Rublev has plenty of power this way, but he doesn't have the power that can take you off the court. It's not quite the power of, let's say, someone like uh, Del Potro was, who could sometimes take the racket out of your hands because it was so concussive. So you th you look, I, I'm watching point after point of the Rublev match. I'm thinking, so what's your idea of how he's going to miss? What's your idea? Because the neither him nor Alex are going to come to net. You're going to try a moon ball. You're going to try something. It's like in Novak, once, once, once the better player sees that you only have so many things going on, it's like, okay, really? You're, that's how you think you're going to beat me? I don't understand. Not a lot of innovation from these opponents versus Novak. Also, Rublev comes in 0-6 in major quarterfinals, uh, having lost yeah. twice, twice to Novak on, on hard court. I think he, I mean, I, I don't know that it was so much the head-to-head, -head, but uh, I did get a sense that Novak might have won before he stepped on the court. Um, Rublev had a little bit of a resignation in my eyes. Uh, that that usually is not what I see out of him. You know, he's a very fierce competitor, and that's why I think it's a little bit harder for him to hide. Uh, so, you know, I, I'd be hesitant to play armchair psychologist, but I know how Rublev acts, and he seemed a little off to me last night. He, he wasn't... Uh, his reaction after missing is usually fury and rage. And last night I was just seeing like despondent, which just mm -hmm. makes me think uh, that he, he was not actually looking forward to this challenge and probably didn't believe uh, that, that he could win last night. Resigned to his fate, as they say, like, and he just, uh, I think for a player like Rublev, I think when you've had that many, but losses in grand slam quarterfinals, that much agony versus Novak in long matches, even though he's beaten Novak in shorter matches, you got to think about broadening the arsenal. And you can't just, of course, the problem is you can't just do that uh, you know, on game day. It's a question of how you build your game. I mean, I, I'm going to just throw out something for the heck of it. And Rafa Nadal did this. Why don't you play more doubles, Andre? <laughs> I mean, just a little bit, just something, because the, the Rublev game and, and, um, is just pretty, pretty narrow. Pretty darn good. We're pretty narrow. And again, someone like Novak, uh, it, it uh, yeah, it, it reminds me a little bit. Um, I'm gonna. I see things. I always see like lots of matches over the years when I'm watching one match, particularly when the match isn't that compelling. And I remember the match, 2007 U.S. Open quarterfinals, Andy Roddick versus Roger Federer, and we know what one-way traffic that rivalry was. And Roddick played 
seemingly quite well in that he was hitting a lot of good shots and moving things, but he was like the, you know, helpless, kind of helpless. And you knew that every rally was pretty much going to go Rogers way. That was the one match where Agassi did TV commentary. So it was like a very uh, neat touchstone moment of mm-hmm. these legends and Agassi's giving the commentary and he's watching poor Roddick and Roddick, Roddick in that case was at the limits of his skill set. And here's uh, Rublev. Yep. Well, all of this was made pop possible um, by an improvement of Djokovic's hamstring. Um, after the Demonor match, he said, you know, it was clear during that match that there weren't really any issues. So then he said, yeah, I it, it felt, felt good today. It felt much better. And, you know, he didn't want to say it's going to be permanently better, but but it was a positive sign. And then uh, I, I think against Rublev, there were moments where it looked a little bit a little bit uncomfortable, but for the most part, the movement is very, very good right now. Uh, very good. So it, it's not going to fully in, inhibit him, um, even if uh, I feel like he's 90, 95%, not 100. Um, but, I mean, Amy, what's your read on how this became possible? You know, he gets through that match against Enzo Cuoco and Grigor Dimitrov where there's periods of time where he looks really, really uh, hampered. And uh, now it, it seems to, he has seemed to gotten over that hump. For anyone who's ever had a muscle strain or pull, you know that when the injury is in the acute phase, that's when it's really unstable. And if you can get through that phase, you reach a point where it's kind of on the downswing and you're, you may start to go to physical therapy or you may be stretching it more as opposed to babying it so much. And I think in these weeks or days um, since he sustained the injury, I think he's kind of turned that corner now. And it's heavily taped, but last night during the match against Rublev, I saw him stretching it quite a bit. So that tells me he's not babying it anymore. He's he's just making sure that it's it's warm. And he did make the comment after the match that he's been throwing everything at it, like the machines, the the therapy, the you know, the physiotherapist, anything that he can throw at it. And and this is a guy who I and I love this about him, but he did sit in the hyperbaric egg once. You know, he likes all the technology and he's got all that at his disposal um, for healing. So um, I think probably now um, it's advantageous that his last two matches have finished in straight sets, but I think he's probably over the hump with the injury. And um, it would be surprised, I'd be surprised to see it taped that heavily if he makes it to the final. Yeah, yeah I mean... Well, he, might tape it. he might tape it, but just to be you know, what, what do you call that? Uh, cautious. Preemptive. preemptive. Precautionary. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. yeah. Novak did say after the match um, that he was hooking himself up to some machine. I have no <laughs> idea. I have no idea. But I, I also do, I have been following his comments about anti-inflammatories and I found that to be interesting because uh, it struck me in the Enzo, I think it was the Enzo Cuoco match. Uh, apologies if I'm getting it confused with the Dimitrov match uh, where, where he took pills mid-match Took him about 20 minutes for it to get better, and, and then it freed him up, and then and then he was able to move uh, seemingly without the pain. And one of my thoughts was, it's interesting. He you, you took him mid match. Why not before the match? And then of course, you know, he says he says after the match, I hate taking anti-inflammatories. I don't 
I don't believe in that kind of treatment for my ailments. So it, it's something that he doesn't want to do. I mean, I do wonder if, uh, similar to Nadal with the numbing at Roland Garros, in these subsequent matches, he's been like, look, got to do what you got to do. I'm going to get ahead of the anti-inflammatories and take them before the match. That way, I'm I'm not getting into a cycle where, uh, you know, I'm having swelling and aggravation, and then I need to take them. That's do you think one he's theory. still taking them? I I would See, think. think... Yeah, oh, I, I I wonder if he's adjusted to instead of taking them because the first sets are when those are when we saw him have trouble against Dimitrov and Quaco. Then it got better. I'm wondering if he's like, all right, I give up. Let's take him before the match, and then I'll be ready to go. Well, I spoke to an orthopedic surgeon not too long ago about ibuprofen specifically for muscle strains and pulls. And actually, his answer was, you take it for pain. But... The new, the very latest is that if you're taking it quite a bit while you're healing from an injury like that, it can actually slow the healing process. That's the very latest. So he's like, the only reason you should take it is for pain and generally within the first 24 to 48 hours and then stop taking it if you want to heal faster. So I'm sure Novak is aware of that. Um, but if he has to take it for pain and mid-match, then he has, he's got to do what he's got to do. It's just Advil. Right. Well, it's, it's interesting, though. I think it's funny because you were saying about how Novak said he hated them. I guess your implication was that Novak hated to have to take them mid-match and adjust to them. And so maybe he's going to get ahead and take them. My thinking was that Novak, given his other comments about many things related to health, doesn't like them at all, period, and wants to see how he can manage his his body without them at all. But on the other hand, that's no, me no, talking that, that, because that, I'm just... That, 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 that... That's what I, no doubt. That's what I was saying, Joel, that he doesn't want to take them. But I think twice, I think in the first two rounds, he's like, uh, this isn't working. I mean, I, I, it's too much pain. I, I have to take them. And now I'm wondering if he's like, all right, we're not going to do that whole routine again. Let's just take them before the match. Oh, no. See, now I'm thinking, no, we're not going to do that routine again. I don't want them. I'm getting better. Fix me, guys. And again, again, of course, that's, that's me personally talking a little bit because I hate them. I don't like them, and I, and I'm and I'm the oldest one on this show, and I don't um I don't like those uh, I don't like those things at all, and I never I never take them, but then, you know, I never played a match at the Australian Open. I don't like them either. My girlfriend what? yells at me though when I have a headache and I'm complaining. What I'm ibuprofen? Uh, as a woman, <laughs> I, I have to say that I I could have not probably gotten through life without it. Um, <laughs> My brother is a doctor who we've had on this show. It calls it vitamin I because it's pretty doggone harmless and it's been tested. I mean, it's it's really what I brought out about the very latest research that it's going to slow your healing. That doesn't mean that it's like unsafe or anything like that. So if you right. need it, you need it. Let's uh, look. I didn't take an aspirin until I was in my 30s. Okay, so there you go. <laughs> Do you know what was also interesting, by the way? Sounds like Novak isn't playing on his off days. Sounds like he's not hitting tennis balls. Jim, that's Currier, what he said. Yeah, yeah right. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So uh, whoa. I mean, you can play that well. I mean, everybody, right? Because that's very rare. I mean, pretty much everybody is Pete hitting. Sampras won Wimbledon that. Pen, Pete Sampras okay. won uh, won Wimbledon that year that way. Didn't even hit. Didn't even hit in the morning sometimes. Walk right at the right at the court. Let's go. Okay, so it's it's the point of diminishing returns. I mean, when you've 
spent that many hours on a tennis court in your life, um, you know the the deal and it may actually be more beneficial to take the time off. We talk about this on this show quite a bit. Are players doing it wrong? Should should that be more like no, seriously, like should should every player like, be I thought so. playing not every practicing day? to save the body? Right. Well, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting stuff to be said about about practice and prep and work. Yeah, that would be an interesting thing. We should actually do our own little, you know, non-scientific talking our sources. Yeah. How about the not hit, no hitting on day uh, during slams? Right. Well, just like they learned a lot of things, uh, Agassi revealed a lot of things about how you train after the age of 28. You know, you don't just, you don't double down. You, 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 you think about it smarter. You work on other muscles, you work on other aspects, whether it's speed or agility and there's the strength years, maybe the strength years and the agility years. That's very interesting. I don't know. Maybe you're right. Maybe it is wrong. Maybe we saw that take, take two weeks off and then quit. <laughs> it's actually a, a big thing in the, in the world of mixed martial arts, which is even, you know, much more physical than tennis is how much should you spar, which is the equivalent of, you know, how much should you be uh, wearing your body to just get those repetitions, but it's a balance. And uh, I mean, man, I just think if a guy can, and I know it's Novak Djokovic, but if he's playing that level it, right off, right at the beginning of matches too, it's not like there's uh, against Rublev and, uh, and against Demonor, he hasn't come out the gates firing and, you know, he's, he's scaled back how much he's been playing. So I found that interesting. What about the effect? Go ahead, Joel. There's a slight anecdote I just thought of. There was a Hall of Fame player named Gene Mako. He and Don Budge, they took a boat from San Francisco to Australia in 1938 when Budge won the slam. And they were on the boat for three weeks. And um, this guy who knows Gene Mako said to him, well, were you, uh, when, you, uh, when you got out of the boat, was that a little tough to go three weeks out of tennis? He goes, what are you talking about? We were the best players in the world. You think I forgot how to play tennis after three weeks out holding a racket? He said, what a stupid question. So I guess... I don't know. I mean, it'll be, and that's actually, we should kind of hold that as an interesting thought as we do more of these shows to think about that, about how you, how you practice and train anyway. Yep. I, I think it's a, an interesting topic. Um, in terms right. of uh, players dealing with, with uh, facing an injured opponent, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion about how to do that. It's a chapter in Brad Gilbert's book about how to play an injured opponent. Uh, so it's not something that you take for granted in tennis. We've seen two players now, Medvedev and Dimonor, act a little bit resentful of, of Djokovic in the process of losing to him. Medvedev kind of uh, pantomiming, Djokovic stretching his hamstring. And then Dimonor is asked, you know, about the injury. And he basically had a really sarcastic look on his face and said, yeah, it's, it's interesting, uh, which I think everybody interpreted as... Uh, him being, you know, casting doubt on how how injured Novak actually is, and I think accurately. I mean, Demonor complains uh, complained about the media taking it out of context. I mean, if you post the video and watch the video, it's very clear what he was trying to say there. Amy, what do you make of of opponents being uh, upset about about uh, the the situation of playing Djokovic in this kind of condition? Nobody likes to be beaten that badly. It, as a human being, that is embarrassing, especially against your, in your home country. Um, so he had a normal human reaction. 
but and, and in, in fairness to Alex, he did say he was outclassed and outplayed. Um, Novak's injury really has nothing to do with it, um, but he was just sort of lashing out, which everyone has done, uh, including Novak, by the way. He's done not maybe on, on, an, on an injury, but he has said things that he regretted, like, I don't know if I'll play Wimbledon this year after getting bounced out of the French Open, which he did play Wimbledon and he won it, so it's a good thing he did. But you say things in the heat of getting beaten. And um, I think Alex blaming the media was shaky. Um, just just own up to it. But um, Novak actually had to respond to this stuff. And he said, look, I'll show you the MRIs. I, I really have been dealing with an injury here. I've been throwing everything I can at it with my physios and all that. So I, I don't think Nova, Novak appreciated these comments. Um, as if he needs any more to fuel him <laughs> to want to win this tournament. It's so interesting how having been in press conferences, how we can just kind of like walk in with a little box of matches and just start to light a little fire of certain things. And next thing you know, sports is becoming like politics and you've got all this like back chat. I think the best thing a player should do after losing a match is to just give it up to the opponent and move on and, and not get ensnared in having to, reply to questions, you know, conjecture about someone else, particularly with someone else who just beat you. Uh, Medvedev doing that mocking uh, cast more of what I sometimes think about a bit of the, um, what is it, snarly? There's a churlish quality to Medvedev at times, you know, kind of a little bit of a, yeah, he he's kind of gets, he, he, that's why I find him a little disturbing at times, you know, like mocking people doing that stuff. Just, you know, be a classy competitor, mm -hmm. find the, find a higher road. And just admit you lost and that's it rather than getting into this whole talk about other players but not easy for players sometimes well look both were salty and i think amy hit the nail on the head right off the bat which is back-to-back uh, -back metaphors there um a player is not going to respond uh well i took a bat and hit a nail with it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh a player is not going to respond well to losing to an opponent who is stretching a lot and taking medical timeouts ever i mean now there's a classy way to deal with it and it's no excuse to not being able to play your best uh but we have seen over and over and over again in tennis and and i think novak feels singled out. I actually don't think he is in this case. I think it happens to to many, many players. When you when you beat an opponent and you've taken injury timeouts, that opponent is gonna be be really salty about it. Uh it's it's a cycle that we see over and over again. The reality is 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 always, I would say, that there is a problem, there is a physical issue, there is an injury. And uh sometimes the player is able to work through it and and win the match. But when when you're on the other side of it, and even fans are are guilty of this when they're on the wrong side, uh, the accusations of faking go flying, and it it's just what happens, unfortunately. But I actually think, in large part, the the media does a good job of just listening to what players have to say about their injuries and taking them for their word, which I think is the way that you you need to go about it. Uh, it's sometimes the players who have a harder time doing that.
Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24 7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA member FDIC. Well, I think we're also in this, I'm sorry, this interesting inflection point of, of commentary and media and, te- and press conferences and social media and this whole little chamber. That exist between players and comments and talking and and then they're tweeting they're going to tweet each other instead of talk to each other and it's 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 a little confusing. I think it's an interesting issue and one that Victoria Azarenka commented on and she even brought up Novak's name recently um, because of course I think it was like maybe ten years ago she was playing in Australia against Sloan Stevens and she won Victoria won the first set um she was in the lead in the second set and then Sloan started to come back and famously Azarenka took a medical timeout and after the match she was asked about it and at the time Azarenka said that she needed to calm herself down and that's why she took the timeout and then later she was asked about it in the press conference at the time and she said that no her back had seized up well it you know it could be both um but the it raises the question if you're having an anxiety attack or a panic attack or something like that can you call a medical timeout should you be able to call a medical timeout or is that just part of tennis it is well, a good question. That's a great question about about mental, physical, about health, about being. It's a good question. I think it'd be um, interesting to talk to people about that. Interesting to talk to players and others. And yeah, right. For her part, Azarenka says that this incident, she got so much flack for this that it's taken her ten years to get over it. Yeah, she said. That, she said yeah, it was ten years ago. Yeah, I was at I was at that match. I remember that and. Uh, Okay. I mean, it's interesting though, also that she said has taken her. I don't know what that, you know, it's always interesting when you think about bad things happen 10 years to get over it. Does that mean she's been thinking about it every day for 10 years? Does that mean when it's brought up, it really hurts? Does that, you know, it's like, I, I always wonder about that thing when someone is over something, but obviously that was a upsetting thing. And I think if it happened now, that's 2013, we're kind of at the dawn of certain aspects of social media. Oh my God. When I think about it now, about what happened about the the speed, you know, it's like just just like the players hit the ball harder. People communicate faster now. You know, there'd there'd be Instagram, there'd be this, there'd be back, there'd be that. She put would she put something else on Instagram, would apologize, would people, you know, advocate on her behalf, conflict with others. Yeah. No, it, you're right. It could have been even worse. But Amy, uh, thanks for bringing that up. It's a it's a great example. And it it again goes to show that if you uh, if you have a lot of success 
amidst uh, medical problems, there are always going to be people who who have a problem with it, uh, which which is wrong. But it, it is the case. It is the case. Um, go on. I think I think for a player, though, I don't know. I, I, it's interesting to hear all this stuff around during the Australian Open because the Australians were notorious for not talking about their injuries. And like Rod Laver once in the middle of Wimbledon had a sore wrist. He didn't want to get treated at Wimbledon. So he went with his wife in a phone booth and they stuck into a phone booth to do some taping of his wrist because he didn't want, not, not as a sign of weakness, but all, maybe that, but also a sign of respect for them. It's like the Australians have a saying about certain players who are often injured. They said, I've never played him when he was well. And, and I think in the, in the world we're in now, you occasionally need to talk about them, but I think, I think the best players are the are ones they, they talk about it minimally, as little as possible, and then carry on. Yeah. Um, at the same time, if if you are affected by your opponent um, doing things like, I don't know, stretching in between points or taking a medical timeout, I mean, that is that is your fault as a player, right, Joel? Like, that's not on Novak. Like if let's say let's say Demonor was like, oh, it affected me. I didn't realize, which he didn't say. But in a hypothetical world, if he was thinking that that it affected him negatively, that's his fault. Totally, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think what, of course, and always trick with playing someone who's injured is oh, and this how much do, do I make the point guess longer? Do I, it, it, it's another it's another intruder factor from the outside, like like the wind or. Or, or strange other conditions, and how do you go about dealing with it? And you've got to kind of that's that's part of the problem solving of tennis, and it's um, and it's not easy. And also the fact that an opponent can recover. You know, he's injured now, but wow, it's the injury seems it's gotten better. So now he's on the you know what's my window for trying to beat him? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Let's talk Tommy Paul, semifinal opponent, American, unseated, although. You know, you go matchup by matchup. Now, Tommy Paul, in my opinion, has faced five top 50 level players, uh, four officially, but Shelton in top 50. Uh, he's just not there yet because he was in college half the year. Uh, so it's been a good run. He hasn't had to pull off that shocking upset, but he has had to pull off a lot of really good victories. And he's been someone who's who's kind of built up to this, um, had his best career year in 2022. Um tremendously physically gifted, I would say, is the, the thing that stands out most about him. Amy, what kind of challenges do you think are most threatening that Tommy Paul poses to Djokovic? He's extremely physically gifted and physically fit. Um, I was struck in the Shelton match how after the first, during and, and after the first set, Shelton was puffing and puffing and Tommy Paul was just, you know, fresh as a daisy. Um, you know, it, it was clear to me that Shelton, although give the kid credit, he came back and won the third set, but um, it was clear to me that Shelton had not faced this sort of level of exhaustion at, at a grand slam, obviously. Um, yeah, Tommy is a great defensive player. He's, a, he's an offensive player as well. Um, he's aggressive. He serves well. He, I, I don't think he's serving near as well as Novak right now. Um, but I, I do think he'll be a tougher out than the previous two. He's got a more complete game. And as you said, um, physically gifted and, and physically fit. 
well, he's got a lot more variety and tools than these other guys. And in a way, it's funny as I look at the people Novak has played, the closest one he reminds me of would be Dimitrov. But it's a little bit like the, the Dimitrov who emerged years ago and we thought, wow, this guy's got some shot making going on. But Paul has a different a whole, a different kind of game with his two-handed backhand, his movement, hit the ball early. Gil, yours? Yeah, can I interject? There's one major difference between Tommy Paul and Dimitrov, which is Tommy Paul's backhand almost never misses. And Dimitrov, I think, made 24 backhand unforced errors in that match against Novak. Well, there you go. He had 24 errors on that side. That's amazing. And uh, and and Paul, I mean, I spent a lot of time last year with Paul's coach, Brad Stein. And I know how Brad, I mean, that's the guy you want as a coach. That's the guy who's not who's going to tell you exactly what you need to know and put you to work on it. And Paul admits that he had some discipline problems in the wake of, of winning the French Open Juniors in 2015. And so, you know, it, this guy did crack the top 50 until November of 21. So he and he's going to be in the top 20 next week and could go further depending on how it happens. Novak, he I think he's a fascinating player to watch play. He hit the ball early, comes to net, uh, won 67 percent of his second serve points versus Shelton. You know, we try for we try for 50. So that's some pretty good stuff. And I think I think the threat to Novak is having played this guy before. Right. What's he got? But it's also (laughs) right. And, and, but Novak will have all the scouting on him. And since Tommy's been on tour for about eight years, I can bet that they have probably hit, you know, a time or two. Oh, they Um, have. They said that. Yeah. Paul said that. So, um, yeah. So, uh, it's it's a disadvantage that Novak has never played this guy, but it's also a disadvantage for Tommy Paul that he's never played Novak Djokovic. I mean, tall for order, sure. Rod Laver, and it's just it's a level. He's probably always been curious, and and now he's going to understand what it's all about. Absolutely. So I think I think what I mean what he's got is like what he'll know. He'll have the inventory. He'll have the 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 audit and all the information, and so he'll see then what's he going to bring? Will he bring it? Really? Does he get hit another forehand winner? And I think for Paul, it's, I mean, Paul, when I interviewed him last year about Brad Stein, he said, Brad wants me to think that I'm Picasso, that I'm an artist, but of course you have to be huh. fit to do that, the world-class level. But so Paul is going to, he's going to, he's going to ask more questions, more different questions in the first 30 minutes of those match, than Novak's previous five opponents combined asked him. And the stuff he's going to throw the array, I think, I just think the kinds of, sequences he's going to attempt to build i think but i I, i'm looking forward to that match i think it's going to be really interesting but of course novak i mean come on it's his it's his house it's nine and oh and aussie open semis yeah Yeah, well i do i love what tommy paul said uh when he went to press uh i think somebody asked him who would you rather face or something like that and he said well you know uh i'd probably have a better chance to beat rublev but i'd rather play novak that would be awesome so I, I think that oh, was an no. interesting. <laughs> oh. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, maybe it's awesome in that, like, I've never played the guy before. I'm ready. Like, let's let's find out what this is about. But so often, how often have we had these matches where the guys are just like happy to be there or there's that ribbon running through it? I mean, they, they don't present that way, but. It, it, that's sort of the undercurrent or in the background. Oh, no. See, I, I beg to differ with this one. I knew Luca Pui. I, Luca Pui was a friend of mine. I think Tommy Paul is no Luca Pui. I mean, a player who's just like, I'm happy to have gotten to this stage. I think Tommy Paul is thinking, yeah, I want to 
contend for these things. And this is the king I need to slay in order to do that. And he's not talking about it like he's some boxer, but he wants to get in. I thought I, I, you want to be, he should be happy to be there, but it's not going to be content to therefore lose. I think he's going to throw a lot of the kitchen sink. And I think this underpinning of fitness and discipline gives Paul the belief, okay, I've put in some hard work. This is where, this is where, this is where I go to pick up my check, win or lose, do my thing, go to work, enjoy. Tactically, I think the big deal for Paul, uh, the difference between um, maybe, especially Rublev, um, is that if Djokovic's defense is less than 100%, which to me it is, it has been, um, the way to take advantage of that is to come forward, uh, which Rublev did not do, right? So if Djokovic, to paint a picture, is uh, hitting slice defense on the backhand side instead of the open stance sliding defense where he's driving the ball, the way to take advantage of that is to come forward and hit a finishing volley. And one thing I know that Tommy Paul will do is not pass up his opportunities to go to the net because that is something that Brad Stein has drilled into him over the last two years that you need to use your athleticism uh, in the transition game uh, to come forward. And he's a really, really good volleyer. So if there's something tactically that I think Paul is going to absolutely be on point with, it's using the opportunities to get to net and and potentially go to Djokovic's backhand and to see what he's got on that backhand pass. Absolutely. And I think it's interesting to see how, again, this emergence of people who are attempting to answer the questions posed by the big three and build their playing style. And then you look at Tommy Paul, Sebastian Corda, Ben Shelton, Tiafo, and there are, these guys are willing to volley and they understand that they they ain't gonna do it versus Novak the way Rublev attempts because they're not even that good as good from the baseline necessarily as Rublev. So I gotta do something else, and that and they were been putting work in that for several years uh, to try to beat Novak that way. So yeah, that'll be interesting. We're interesting to see if uh, I don't know. You think Paul comes to net fifty times? How many times do you think he comes Dep to net? Depends on how how many sets like, yeah. and and right. the number of games, but. I would, I don't know if Tommy Paul uses data, but I would have my data people look at every single point that Novak's played and find out where the errors are coming this tournament. Um, is the hamstring hampering him on one wing or the other? And if he wants to come in which to the net, which I think is a good idea, that would inform his approaches and what would be an acceptable approach shot in terms of depth. Um, I don't know. I just, I haven't really seen any sort of weakness on one wing or the other. I mean, he's, he's not, he's, he's been on point on, on both wings. I, I think um, otherwise I don't know. None, that can... none, none of Novak's opponents have really outside of maybe Dimitrov in that first set. So none of Novak's opponents have particularly applied pressure to him that way. And not that I'm saying, oh, and here's mm -hmm. Paul's opportunity. But I think it's an interesting way. And actually, for that matter, in the 21st century, there haven't been many stylistic opponents who, who do that versus Novak. You know, Roger did at times earlier in their rivalry, different surfaces, different speeds. But that's the way. In the meantime, Novak himself, though, he's been coming up that quite briskly, effectively. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let me flip it around with one more tactical point. The, the reason why Paul needs to go to net is because he's a little bit underpowered from the back. He doesn't finish points off that well with his forehand from the baseline, uh, especially just compared to a lot of his modern peers where that's become such a big part of the game. 
that's why he needs to come forward. But I think what Djokovic will look at is the Tommy Paul forehand. The backhand, very hard to attack, very hard to break down. Uh, it stays so flat, so low, very precise. Forehand is the spot, I think, for Djokovic where you get some errors there. It's a little bit spinnier and loopier. And I think forehand to forehand, Djokovic can do some overpowering. Agreed. I think so. And I think that's why Paul has to look for chances to kind of break open the point because he just want to, he wants to he wants to avoid certain sequences with Novak. That's the thing with people. How would I put it? I think more when you look at the big three, the one you least want to get into sort of pattern sequences in is Novak. You know, Rafa is Rafa, you're just kind of like in this cauldron and he's a lefty and it's coming here. You've got to create new sequences. Um, Roger's doing his Roger's stuff with his own eclectic thing. But Novak is just kind of like lock into these patterns. We're going cross court, cross court, cross court. I'm going down the line. And, and these guys just get ensnared in it. And you're right. And Paul, he needs to, he needs to bust that open because he, he can't, he's, he's not going to come out on the, on the good end of too many rallies like that. I think if he does commit to this strategy of coming forward quite a bit, um, he needs to really commit to it. it it's going to hurt when he get when he gets past. And let's say he comes out of the gate and does it in the first set. And let's say he loses the first set. I would hope that he would just stick with the strategy and see how far he can take this. Because when Novak passes you, it doesn't feel good. Agreed. But I think the net rusher, a net rusher needs to take out, be, be the coolest cucumber in the room. A net rusher needs to think, don't mean anything. Fine. Good. Well done. You hit good. Well done. You hit a winner. I'm happy for you. Hit another. That doesn't mean it's going to be Patrick Rafter. This is a different era. I get that. But the psychology of net rushing has to be kind of the, the um, you know, the long play, the long game and, and, and how you're applying pressure. And because on the other hand, yeah, I don't know what feels, what feels worse having Novak coming to net 10 straight points, let's say, for example, and having Novak pass you down the line, cross court, or or being on the baseline and having Novak just like ring you out like a towel, <laughs> 10 yeah. straight points. I don't know. I'd rather yeah. I'd rather take a lethal injection over the <laughs> over the long waterboarding. There's something about we can, you know, talk about this another show, but there's something psychologically damaging about getting past more so than losing a point at the baseline. That's my theory anyway. Speak for yourself. Also, <laughs> people I, don't like to get lobbed. That's... But you know, the funny thing is, for me, and Gil knows this because we've played, I, I'd, I'd far rather, I'd far, I, I'd far rather get past. I'm fine. I have no emotional problem being past. Where I do have a problem is when I'm like, make stupid decisions from the baseline. Next thing you know, I'm kind of like floundering back there. So I think it has to do with how games are built. And then, of course, in the contemporary era, far fewer net rusher. That's why I'm like, you know, I have my nice 1973 game. <laughs> well, um, if I were to compare Tommy Paul to uh, any uh, fruit or vegetable, it would be a cucumber. It's very, <laughs> very, very cool. Very cool. So let's see how it, how it plays out as uh, Djokovic into his 10th Australian Open semifinal gunning for his 10th Australian Open title. That'll do it for this episode of three. Remember, we're available on all podcast platforms. We appreciate it. If you leave a rating and a review on Apple and Spotify, and if you're watching on YouTube, please like, comment, and subscribe. We will see you next time on the next episode of three.